Steve Harmon has spent most of his professional life in law enforcement and within the legal community, and now he's eyeing becoming St. Louis's next circuit attorney. The Democrat joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair to say. I say hands to kiss and babies to shake. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter for St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in our studios in St. Louis is colleague Joe Manis, our special guest host for today, Rachel Lippman, and our very special guest we have in studio, Steve Harmon, a candidate for circuit attorney, a Democrat, and a man who was wearing an incredible <clears throat> seersucker suit, which you'll be able to see online. Uh, welcome. This is continuing our series of interviewing the circuit attorney candidates in the city of St. Louis. We, we feel that this race is so important that it affects the lives of everyday people, and it could affect the lives of everyday people for the foreseeable future, that we want to have all four candidates on, let the city of St. Louis residents know who they are and what they're going to do with the office, and we appreciate you coming by. Um, so I guess my first question for you is just tell us a little bit about yourself, your professional experience, anything we, anything we need to know about Steve Harmon, basically. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, Steve Harmon, I'm a lifelong resident of the city of St. Louis. Um, former St. Louis police officer. I spent over 20 years on the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. During my tenure on the department, I served in all nine police districts. Former homicide detective. I was also on a major case squad. I was a juvenile detective, uh, detective sergeant. And when I retired nine and a half years ago, I was a watch commander. I was also commander of crimes against property, which entailed the bomb and arson unit, cyber crimes, fraud, and auto theft unit. Okay, and our listeners do need to know, full disclosure, that um, you're the son of former police chief, former mayor, Clarence Harmon. That is correct. Yes, who who I've met several times, covered a couple of his campaigns. Um, very uh, nice man. And so after you finished up as, as the uh, in the police department, what led you to then take the route into being an attorney, and what was some of that experience like? Well, before I, I became an attorney, the St. Louis Police Department at one time had a uh, generous tuition reimbursement program where if police officers wanted to further their education, the department would pay a percentage of the uh, tuition. So I took advantage of that. Uh, when I started on the police department, I had a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. I later went back to school as a police officer and obtained a master's degree in management a couple years later, I went back and got a second master's degree in human resources. And then I thought, well, I guess I'll go to law school, something that I always wanted to do. I had it in the back of my mind, so I enrolled in St. Louis University's uh, evening law school program. And after completion and taking the bar exam in Missouri and then in Illinois, I became licensed, and I was still a police officer. So after I uh, reached 20 years of service, about a year later, I decided it was time to go out and practice law. And I was hired by St. Louis County Consulate Office, where I became a prosecuting attorney in the municipal court for uh, nearly four years. Mm-hmm. And that was under the, the, the Charlie Dooley administration. Is that, that is correct. correct. And now, being a lawyer is obviously there's probably differences, maybe similarities between between being a policeman. Do you want to talk a little bit about that transition and maybe what your experience as a 
as a police officer brought to your um, tenure as a lawyer? Well, it, it several things. First of all, being a police officer, I had the experience of knowing what police officers do, what their daily lives are, as well as what constitutes arrest and all the other stuff that police officers do that later comes out in court. And as a prosecutor, I was able to uh, navigate reading police reports, uh, dealing with police officers, having them come to court, knowing what questions to ask them uh, when I had them on the stand testifying in cases. So it's, it was very helpful in that sense. And, and for our listeners who, who may not quite grasp, when you hear municipal police uh, prosecutor, you might think, well, that doesn't seem like a big deal. But St. Louis County has almost three or 400,000 people that live in unincorporated St. Louis County. It's a huge swath of area. And basically, I would I would guess you would be responsible for prosecuting people that commit ordinance violations or just commit, you know, crimes that are against the county laws, essentially. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, my docket generally ranged anywhere from uh, traffic offenses, DWIs, uh, assaults, larcenies, uh, shopliftings, domestic violence cases, and I also handled the mental health court. Uh, we had a, a huge mental health court uh, where I, that I was the uh, prosecutor over. So right now you are an attorney for the St. Louis Public Schools. Tell us just a little bit about your role there. Well, yes, I'm currently the uh, staff attorney in-house counsel, if you will, for the St. Louis Public Schools. I've been there for a little over six years. Um, <clears throat> my role, basically, I handle uh, the workers' compensation cases, unemployment claims for the district, uh, uh, personnel matters, uh, disciplinary actions, uh, background checks, uh, background investigations, and anything else that the superintendent or the special administrative board um, has for me to do, any other assignments. So I, I want to know uh, why you decided to run for circuit attorney. If, I, if I'm not mistaken, you actually got in the race before Jennifer Joyce announced that she wasn't going to run again. And I don't think any of the other candidates made that type of leap. Just kind of let us in on your decision-making on that very big choice that you made. Well, it's interesting that you say that, and that is correct. Um, first of all, a little background on how I came to be involved in a circuit attorney's race. Approximately four years ago, I was approached by several uh, attorneys here in St. Louis that saw a need for change in that office, myself included, and they had suggested that, you know, and urged me to run for St. Louis circuit attorney four years ago. I gave it some thought, and uh, I didn't feel that the time was right for me. I wasn't ready to uh, make that uh, transition at that point. Several years ago, actually about two years ago, I decided that I was going to run for St. Louis Circuit Attorney and assembled a team of uh, competent attorneys and other people in the community that would support my candidacy. I announced that I was going to run against Jennifer Joyce a little over a year ago. And actually, for three months, I was running against Jennifer Joyce. Um, I announced in March that I was actually seeking that office. I believe it was in June of a year ago when she decided that she was going to not seek re-election. Yeah, and actually, <laughs> Joyce, uh, Joyce uh, was told Joe she was the first person to be told mm -hmm. in the media. Yeah, we had an exclusive interview with her first. But, but continue. Go ahead. Right. So I was running against her for three months, and I know she gave an explanation as to why she was— uh, not going to seek re-election. I have my own thoughts on that, but she decided that she wasn't going to run for re-election and retire. 
Um, I was the only candidate that was going to actually that stepped up and was going to challenge her and take her on. And I think I would have been successful in, in my campaign against Jennifer Joyce. Uh, when she decided that she was not going to seek reelection, she turned and endorsed uh, Mary Pat Carl, her protege. Uh, later, I um, believe a young man, Steve Roberts, who was actually working in that office at the time, announced he was running. Kimberly Gardner announced she was going to run. Then you had Patrick Hamaker get in the race. Uh, yeah. Steve Roberts ultimately left the race, so the other three are in there. And none of them were willing to challenge uh, the incumbent, Jennifer Joyce. Now, what prompted you? I know you mentioned that you got some encouragement. Mm -hmm. But was there a particular issue that prompted you to challenge her? And now, I mean, is there anything that sets you apart? I mean, what do you see as setting you apart from the other three rivals? Well, what I think what actually made me decide that I was actually going to uh, seek this office was the fact of the, like I said, the encouragement from uh, other people in the community and the fact that there's a need for change in that office. That office has, uh, over the last several years, had several instances, issues that have uh, caused the public in general to think uh, less of that office, the integrity issues, uh, prosecutors pleading guilty in federal court, uh, alleged corruption, and just a number of things, um, mishandled prosecutions, and it just ultimately led to the lack of uh, public distrust. And I felt that with my background, I would be able to not only help restore some of the public trust, I would bring a different perspective being a former law enforcement officer for many years and dealing with the crime that we have in St. Louis. So that was the thing that ultimately led me to decide to enter the race. So out of the four candidates, you're the only one who has not actually worked in the circuit attorney's office or is not currently working there. Right. Now, now some would say, you know, that's a demerit on you, but I guess some could argue that it's actually a positive because you kind of bring an outsider's perspective. So I'm assuming you think it's B as opposed to A, but explain to me why that's a good thing. Well, I think it's a good thing because, like you said, I am the outsider. I'm a, the political outsider. I'm non-establishment. The other candidates were either uh, hired, trained, and recruited uh, by Jennifer Joyce. So uh, the ones that are currently in that office, I think, bear some of the responsibilities that uh, have led to some of the distrust in the community. Um, so I don't own any of that. I bring a different perspective. Uh, I plan to uh, bring change to that office. And also what sets me aside from the other three candidates, the circuit attorney is an administrative and managerial position. The circuit attorney manages a staff of attorneys and support personnel and investigators. I am the only candidate in this race that has actual supervisory and managerial experience. None of the other candidates have ever supervised or managed a single individual. I've worked with budgets. I've done hiring and firing, dealt with promotions, uh, employee misconduct, employee discipline. I've actually managed the staff, a uh, whole platoon of uh, police officers, commanded uh, four detective bureaus simultaneously. So I know how to deal with uh, the management uh, and supervisory issues. So... Violent crime is obviously something that is is a big issue not only for the police officers who you you know know well and have been one, but for the circuit attorney's office. What do you think that the circuit attorney's office could best do with the powers that it has to help with the violent crime in the city? Well, a number of things. First, uh, I think uh, adding more diversity to that office. Um, staff of 
uh, 59 attorneys, only three of whom were African-American up until recently, once I began to publicly challenge uh, the circuit attorney about some of the uh, lack of diversity in that office. I think that would uh, serve that office in the community much better because oftentimes people of color in this community as well as across the country are less trusting of people in authority that are not like them. Mm -hmm. So when you have a staff that is non-diverse, it brings a lack of trust to that community. Therefore, you have lack of cooperation. Witnesses are reluctant to come forward along with victims and so on. So that would be one of the things I would address. Also, I would look at how that office assigns its personnel. One of the things I plan to introduce to that office is community-oriented prosecution. Most people are familiar with community-oriented policing, right. mm -hmm. but community-oriented prosecution is similar uh, in theory, but in practice uh, somewhat different. I would have prosecutors assigned geographically throughout the city. Okay. Uh, hmm. the, the citizens within a given community would have a prosecutor assigned to them where they would know who their prosecutor is. They would have access to their prosecutor. They would uh, be able to contact their prosecutor and let them know what types of uh, offenses are being committed in their particular area, what they would want their prosecutor to focus on. Because I'll tell you, it, it may be a particular type of uh, crime or offense occurring in Dogtown right. that's not occurring in Walnut Park, or that may be occurring in Soulard that may not be occurring in Dutchtown. So people in Soulard would say, this is our prosecutor, this is what we want you to focus on in right. our area, right. versus that community over there may tell their prosecutor to focus on something different. But at the same time, we would still prosecute all the, the regular, you know, serious offenses. How would that work, though, with it being the police that are responsible for bringing the cases to the prosecutor? You can tell a prosecutor in, you know, Dutchtown, we want you to prosecute car clottings or car break-ins all mm -hmm. you want. But until the cases are brought to the prosecutor, they can't just go and, and you know, pick out and say, you know, we are, you know, we're going to do car, car break-ins all day long. Well, you're exactly right. So we'd have to have police bring those cases. But at the same time, the circuit attorney... Um, can always bring charges against people without the police. Mm -hmm. A classic example of that would be with the uh, case that's going on right now with Officer Stockley. Right. I know uh, mm -hmm. he was arrested recently for uh, an incident that occurred a little over four years ago. And the circuit attorney stated that the reason her office didn't do anything about it when they had the evidence four right. years ago was because the police didn't ask them to. The police didn't ask them to investigate. That's I've never heard of such nonsense where you're the circuit attorney, you have investigators, you have a grand jury, you can always indict, you can send cases to the grand jury, you can issue charges. She didn't need the police to mm -hmm. tell her to investigate this. You're the circuit attorney. I mean, if you knew of this evidence, which obviously she did, but she didn't act on it. Similarly, if you know of a crime that's being committed and the police don't do anything, well, she can investigate it or I could investigate it as circuit attorney and charge accordingly. Right. Not that that would be used in uh, minor offenses. I think that would be something in, in rare instances, such as the case with uh, Officer Stockley. Now, one of the big issues which uh, Rachel just touched on before was the whole question of violence or the perception of violence. There's been a lot of comments from Attorney General Chris Coster on down about their concerns about gun violence in the St. Louis area and other urban parts of the state. But in this case, we're talking about St. Louis. Is there anything particular that you would do? I mean, granted, the circuit attorney can only deal with certain parts of it, but Joyce has been talking about it. Uh, 
your rivals are talking about it. How would you deal with it? What do you think the circuit attorney's office should be doing regarding it? Well, I get asked about this daily. Um, Steve, if you get elected circuit attorney, what are you going to do about the crime? What are you going to do about all these guns? You know, with guns everywhere. You know, the guns are out there. They're not coming back. Right. You know, we, we can't go out and take everyone's guns from them. Uh, so the guns are out there. I think what we need to do is change the mindset of the individuals that have the guns, that are using them irresponsibly, that are committing crimes, that are committing these homicides, and attack that issue. Right. Uh, not that I'm saying that, you know, guns are a good thing. It's just that they're out there. We can't get them back. That horse has left that barn a long time ago. So we need to focus our efforts on dealing with those that have them or may uh, come into possession of them. Uh, one of the things that I do on a regular basis, on actually on a weekly basis, uh, is going to the juvenile detention centers. I'm with an organization, the 100 Black Men, where I serve on the board of directors. And we started a program about two years ago where every Thursday we go into the juvenile detention center and mentor the young men that are incarcerated in there. We hear some of the stories about how they came to be in that right. environment and so on. And a lot of them have said that they have no hope. They don't expect mm -hmm, to live mm -hmm. to be beyond 21 years of age. A lot of them think that if you're 25, that's old because they don't expect to, to reach that, that right, age. Right, so right. they have no hope. They have nothing to, to lose or to gain. So we need to change that and uh, provide services, resources for them, and maybe education, whatever it is we can do to keep right. them from that cycle. Is, is there anything the circuit attorney can do to convince the legislature to put more firearms restrictions? Because I know the current circuit attorney and also the prosecuting attorney of Jackson County have been very upfront about the need for gun control, but mm -hmm. they run into this brick wall that's called the Missouri legislature and the next circuit attorney, not circuit attorney, circuit attorney well. is, is going to run into an executive block with uh, the next governor, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, they're not extremely receptive to gun control either. So is there anything the circuit attorney can do on that front, or do you think it's just more of meeting individual people as opposed to changing state law or state policy? Well, we can always lobby our uh, elected officials and always, you know, uh, challenge them and show them the, the results of their legislation or lack thereof of how it impacts the city of St. Louis and our communities. But you're right, we really don't have the power. I can't go up to, as, as circuit attorney, up to Jeff City and make them enact a law right. or make them uh, change something with uh, gun control. I, I can lobby as, as strictly and hard as uh, my, any of my predecessors or anybody else would. But, you know, that's uh, the limit of the power that that office would have is, you know, lobbying like, you know, everyone else does. And I would continue that. You've also had uh, Chief Sam Dotson recently make a number of comments about judges and the role that they're playing, he argues, in causing, contributing to some of this by putting individuals who've committed gun crimes back out on the streets with low bonds. Do you agree with his comments or what role do you think judges and these low bonds may be playing in enabling some of these people to be back out on the streets and commit and commit serious crimes? Well, that's an interesting um, uh, conversation. Um, Chief Dodson has called out several of the judges by name and uh, has taken that fight on. Mm -hmm. I know that started uh, over a year ago, and at that time the circuit attorney was also calling out some of the judges. Uh, I don't think that's a good idea okay. 
for public officials to finger point back and forth. I mean, he's in charge of the police. We need the police to cooperate with the courts, with the circuit attorney. And once you sit the finger pointing back and forth, that just erodes that relationship and lessens the credibility of the whole justice system in general. Having said that, uh, the judges obviously have an essential role in that when they uh, sentence people that are before them if they're convicted for whether it's a gun crime, such as the, the rape case we saw recently with the judge in another state, or whatever type of case, there's always going to be somebody that doesn't like the outcome of it. Uh, judges with guns, I think, you know, they now have a, a gun docket, a gun court. It's been up since, uh, I believe, the gen- beginning of the year, so I don't think yeah. there's enough data yet to determine the outcome. Have of they implemented that, Rachel? Um, the last I knew that they had was sort of the expedited docket. Right. I yeah. know that they've got yeah. the diversion. Mm-hmm. They were working on a fel- in, within the prosecutor's office, not within the judge's office, okay. but the prosecutor's we've been, office. We've has... been asking people about that, and I guess what they're trying to do on a state level is put mm-hmm. it into statute and make it basically mandatory. But I guess this is more yeah. uh, voluntary. But right. what, what I what I believe they have is on the judge's side, it's an expedited docket where they speed right. up the cases, mm-hmm. and then the prosecutor's office itself has been developing with some federal assistance, a program to get lower level right. individuals into more of a diversion, like, hey, you know, you don't need this to put for culture reasons, that kind of stuff. But we're okay. not talking like those who have actually used the gun. It's usually more of a con- uh, carrying concealed or uh, carrying as yeah. a felon. Those okay, kind of now we've got that out of the way, continue. Well, I, and with the legislation that's currently on the governor's desk, I think this whole discussion will be moot if that gets signed or if it gets overwritten, uh, because then we'll do away with concealed carry. Yeah, no. yeah, exactly. And yes, it's the permitless. Right. Yes. So it'll do, what's do, your thought about that? Do you support or oppose it? Oh, yeah. I strictly oppose that. Uh, as a former law enforcement officer, as a former prosecutor seeking to become a prosecutor, as a citizen, as a resident, I'm adamantly opposed to uh, doing away with concealed carry permits as well as the background and so on. Yeah, and I'm asking this to all the candidates because when I read that blog post that Chief Dodson put out criticizing the judges, I have to tell you, my first reaction was that this is a very subtle attack on the Missouri nonpartisan court plan, which Mm -hmm. is the way judges are picked in St. Louis, where three nominees are picked by a panel and the governor picks the ultimate person, and then there's a retention votes. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious whether you think that system is good for St. Louis. Obviously, to change that would require a constitutional amendment. So, I mean, you can't change that on your own. But when we're talking about accountability, some would say, like, I guess, Dotson, that that system creates a system of unaccountability. What's your kind of take on that? Well, I disagree. I think it's the best system that we have uh, in place. I think our system is, is the best, one of the best ones in the country the nonpartisan plan, because the alternative would be you would have uh, judges seeking office in the same manner that I'm seeking the office, where we'd be out campaigning, trying to raise funds, soliciting uh, money from donors, uh, advertising. The the whole night would just make it into uh, an office. I mean, a circus attorney, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Your words, not mine. Continue. (laughs) But I think that if judges were to have to go through the same process that other elected officials have to go through, you know, you would have judges on there that would, you know, only reason they would be a judge is because right. they outspent someone else or because uh, somebody backed them or something as opposed to being impartial. So I think that's the best uh, system that we have is what's in place. Now, looking at the field <clears throat> right now, I mean, are there any particular 
things that you plan to do or that you will discuss as far as getting your name out and differentiating yourself with to the public mm-hmm. that saying this is why I'm the best of the four. Is there anything you're going to be doing? You're going to be doing TV ads, mailers, or are you going door to door? Just sort of how do you? Well, just how the are general, you getting your name across? Uh, the 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 general campaign tactics that most people employ, whether it be mailers, uh, knocking on doors, canvassing, uh, just promoting myself as a as a candidate. I think that I'm the best candidate in this in this race, and hopefully the public will agree and vote for me on August second. Um, but yeah, we'll be doing. The, the normal campaign uh, strategies. Now, before we get into the political aspect of this, we do want to touch on one other issue, which is uh, a, a independent prosecutor if there's a police-involved killing. I think that was one of the first recommendations of the Ferguson Commission report. It's something that I think is getting a lot of thought, even though it also is getting a lot of criticism from Republicans and Democrats who are attorneys. Uh, you're, you have a unique perspective here. You're a former police officer you know what goes on in the line of duty. Um, what do you think about that idea? Would you employ it if you are circuit attorney? Well, I've heard that the idea of a special prosecutor, but you're actually the first person that I've ever heard say that in a pol- deadly police shooting. Mm-hmm. Most of the times it's framed as a police-involved shooting, mm-hmm. whether it uh, results in a fatality or not. Okay. Right. But you're and, the first there, person that actually said a, a fatal police shooting. Yeah, and, why, and this is the reason I usually say police-involved killing. Like, right. For example, if a police officer uses a car to intentionally run mm-hmm. over somebody, I think that there would that would fall into that just as if or they used a gun to shoot or used a taser. Up, yeah. I know that people often, strikes. I mean, I, I, this is probably getting too much in the weeds, but that's the way I, reason I use the term police-involved killing because well, there I is a possibility. Well, you have to get into to the weeds yeah. because something yeah, you just exactly. said was uh, you said the term police involved killing and the example you gave was a police officer intentionally using right. his vehicle to run over somebody. Yeah, exactly. Well, what about in the case where a police officer accidentally right, exactly. right. Well, So you need to get into the weeds and you try yes. and parse out is this intentional yes. or is it accidental? Yes, exactly. Well, and of course, I mean, all this discussion about uh, independent prosecutor, I think in some cases overlooks the fact that the General Assembly would have to approve to make this a broad policy. I mean, there's certain things you could do within the circuit attorney's office in the city of St. Louis. There's certain things you could not. It's not like exactly. you could just yeah. say, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to get a hold of the AG's office and have them do So how would you approach this and what's your stance on all this? Well, I think it would be something that I would be willing to look at. You know, like I said, you're the first person that actually said a killing. Most of the time I get asked about a police-involved shooting. Right. And okay. then there's numerous examples of why that would not be a good idea versus why it would mm-hmm. be. Mm-hmm. So I think it would be on a case-by-case basis, and I would have to look at all the facts involved and determine whether or not my office should be recused and should we uh, request or seek uh, another jurisdiction to prosecute this case or to even investigate the case? And if so, who? And one of the things about that is that if you have a special prosecutor and they look into the case and they come up with a finding of, you know, no criminal uh, incident or what have you, and then the public's un- not happy with that, then what? Yeah. Right. So then right. we do a, get a, a second special prosecutor? I mean, right. there's always going to be some question yeah. and doubt as to... And, and- 
And I just want to add, I could imagine this would be brought in if a, poli- a policeman shoots somebody and they don't end up dying, too. Mm-hmm. So it Some could also of so use, that, of force, use of force. Exactly. Use of force I want to make incident. that clear to our listeners. But mm-hmm. when they're taught when in the Ferguson Commission report, I think they were pretty clear mm-hmm. in, the, in that instance. It was when a police officer shoots and kills somebody. And you know, I've been at, at, at neighborhood and ward meetings where I've had individuals ask about, Anytime a police officer fires their weapon mm-hmm. and strikes somebody, mm-hmm. we should have a special prosecutor. And I'm thinking, well, what if it's an accident and they were at the range? Right, or, right. or what, you know, you can always right. what if forever. Mm-hmm. Right. And do we need to expend resources on something like that just because? I think, again, it should be on a case by case basis. Are there certain things that. you would do to reorganize the circuit attorney's office? Uh, yes. You want to give a little example of that? Well, one of the things I said about uh, the assigning of prosecutors right. within mm-hmm. geographic areas, I would also, before I you know, began any uh, systematic or major uh, overhaul or, or reassignment of staff, I'd want to get in there and see exactly what's what, who's where, because I'm sure that office, just like the police department, just like any other organization, has people that have been there forever or people that are there that we don't really know exactly right. what they right, do right, and right, why right. are you still here or, or why are you here? Right. And, you know, so I need to find out exactly who's where, who's doing what, you know, what your job is, and then take it from there, do an assessment of that office and see where changes can be made. Are there any things that the office is doing right now that you know you might want to keep in place or expand any programs that you think are moving in the right direction you would want to maintain? I would have to look at it again. Like I said, I would have to see exactly. You know, it's one thing to look at it from the outside, you know, and it's another thing to actually look at it from the inside. So once I get into the office, I'd want to take a look. So I I can't really say what I would want to keep in and away with. Now, now, you mentioned before we went on the air that um, some of the candidates have been talking about uh, Jennifer Joyce's relatively new, the last year or so, policy of having prosecutors show up at the crime scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're pointing to the fact that you had actually written something about this that was published before that decision was made. Is there anything you want to talk about that? Certainly. Well, you know, like I stated, I was, I'm was i a former homicide detective. I was a homicide detective 25 years ago, and back then I saw the need for having uh, prosecutors come to the crime scene. At that time, the circuit attorney was George Peach, and my partners and I, we would routinely make arrests in a number of homicides. We would take them to the circuit attorney and have the cases uh, taken under advisement, and right. they would give us instructions to go back and get this evidence, go back and interview this person, go back and do this. And I was thinking, well, if you'd have been out there that night with us, you know, you could have told me that because, you know, ultimately you or your people are going to try this case, and it would have been helpful if I would have known that three days ago. Right. So I thought about that, and once I began to seek this office, I had an occasion to uh, write an article in the St. Louis American dated March the 12th of 2015. Well, as part of the fact-checking for that article, the editor sent my article to the circuit attorney for a review and, uh, and a response or a rebuttal. Mm-hmm. So in, obviously in reviewing my article, I had mentioned that I would have prosecutors come to the crime scene. Well, obviously she read that because uh, several months later, she had a big rollout of a uh, press release of prosecutors now coming to the crime scene. So originally that was my idea. It's been documented. I have the documentation to show and support that. 
and now they're touting that as their bright idea. And I believe they still have them coming to the uh, crime scenes, but they, I don't think they would do it in the same manner that I would actually having been a homicide detective mm -hmm. and knowing what a homicide detective does as opposed to reading about what they do or being told about what they do. Now, just to flesh out another point you talked about in the outset of in infusing diversity into the circuit attorney's office, to to also use the St. Louis American as a source. I know that there was a political eye a few months ago mm -hmm. where you made uh, where there was a quote from you, and then Joyce's office said the following: She has five, not three, black attorneys on staff. One of them is a manager, and there are twenty-one, not zero, black support staff in the office. Eight investigators, two victims advocate, eleven clerical staff, four are those supporting staff or managers. One is detached from the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. So, okay, that's what her office says. But I guess my question for you, that's kind of what her office says is the status quo now. What would you do to basically increase that status quo? How would you recruit more African-Americans, both the support staff and attorney level? And not just African-Americans, but Latinos, Latino. Bosnians, LBG, LGBT communities, exactly. all, all those things. I think that office should reflect the community that it serves. And all of those uh, groups and, and ethnic backgrounds that you just mentioned are part of this community. So they should be represented in that office in some capacity, whether they're attorneys or support staff or investigators. One of the first things I would do is, is recruit. I know she's mentioned, when I say she, uh, the circuit attorney has mentioned that it's a challenge for her office to recruit uh, minorities into that office because she says a lot of times that uh, some of the larger law firms want to hire them right out of law school. Well, at the same time, I know a lot of attorneys right out of law school would like to work in that office because they gain uh, experience at a rapid rate that they would, uh -huh. you know, you go to a big uh -huh. law firm and you're someone's assistant or a clerk for three or four or five years before you even walk into a courtroom. Over the circuit attorney's office, you'll probably be in court in the first week. Um, so a lot of attorneys would love that opportunity. There are a number of uh, African-American law schools, HBCUs, that uh, would love to have some of their students uh, recruited. Um, then there's you know, people locally that are in private practice that would like an opportunity. So I think it's a matter of recruiting, where you recruit, how you recruit. Uh, as far as the investigators, there are, you know, a lot of people that would like an opportunity uh, to be investigators in that office as well as support staff. But to have an office where there were 59 attorneys, I said there were three, and she says, no, no, there's five. I think, you know, that speaks volumes of what's going on in that office. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. Follow Rachel on Twitter at... At R. Lipman, two P's, two N's. Do you have a website or a Twitter that we can, can go to? Yes, uh, Harmon2016, www.harmon2016.com. Go to that website and find out more about our guests. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. Talking about the stormy weather What's a man to do but work out weather?